Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hello, ocean lovers. Did you know we have podcast merchandise now? If you are looking for a way to support the podcast and look awesome doing it, head over to marinebio.life shop. For our first design, I've partnered with Deanna from Coelacanth Studios and episode 21 of the podcast to create an amazing eagle ray. 10% of proceeds will benefit ray research. Check out the tanks, t-shirts, and stickers we have available over at marinebio.life shop. They make great gifts for the ocean lover in your life marinebio.life/shop. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marinebiolife. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. What did the shark say after he was accused of hitting his brother? Not guilty. My guest today is the Ocean Policy Program Director for the American Littoral Society, Sarah Winter Whalen. Sarah grew up knowing that she wanted to help protect the ocean and, after gaining field experience, realized that policy interested her more. In today's episode, Sarah shares her path to becoming an ocean lawyer, some important policy work that is helping to shape our oceans today, and how you can get involved. Please enjoy. Sarah, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so excited to chat with you today. I am very, very excited to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. So we're going to dive into all sorts of different topics today with ocean policy and how people can become involved. But I want to take it back to your personal history. You studied marine science at University of South Carolina. So you knew you wanted to be a marine biologist from a young age. What spurred that interest? That is a great question. It is one that my parents still ask (laughs) all these years later um, because I grew up, I'm from Illinois. Um, You have to drive through cornfields to get in or out of my town. And so there was no ocean as a kid um, growing up, but I was... um, my grandparents, my there's a long, complicated story, but my f- dad's side of the family has a very special relationship with Florida. He grew up um, as a child in part in Florida. And so my grandparents became snowbirds in their older age, and we would go down and visit them. We would drive 24 hours in a minivan um, in the middle of the night um, <laughs> to Florida from Illinois. And so I think it was really that exposure as a kid, seeing the ocean um, and recognizing just how amazing it is um, that must have done it. Because I can't remember a time where I didn't want to grow up and do something that protected and saved the ocean. I just like, I can't. My parents were like, you were always 
it was always your thing. You always wanted to do something with the ocean. And so I, I, that's the only thing I can think of when I get asked that question is it must have come from that exposure as a kid. Yeah, but it's always been something I wanted to do, weirdly. Yeah, no, that's great. It uh, definitely casts a spell. It sounds like it held you in there. So why South Carolina then, all the way from Illinois? Mm. I mean, there's plenty of different, you know, organizations and colleges that study mm-hmm. marine sciences. There are. I think my dad, being an alum of the University of Illinois, would have been happy to have me go there and study freshwater fish. But um, <laughs> I became entranced with coral reefs and mm. coral reef ecology. And so in my in my teenager mind, I wanted to become a coral reef ecologist. And so I looked for programs and I applied for scholarships. And um, you know, I visited a couple things. I was very lucky to have super supportive parents, even though they didn't understand. They were supportive. And you know, I visited a couple of places. Obviously, I couldn't go anywhere near where I grew up. And so we visited California and we visited South Carolina and, you know, Miami. And there was just something about South Carolina that felt right. And I really loved their program. Um, They have a really incredible marine science program. And I also got a really great scholarship. And so that makes a difference. It was one of the cheaper it's actually cheaper to go to this out-of-state public college than it would have been to go in-state, which I think is probably what actually ended up, you know, making my dad go, okay, fine. Okay, fine. We'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The economics are important. It they makes, are. yeah, it makes, a, it makes a real difference. Absolutely. So you're getting a marine science degree at University of South Carolina. Yeah. And somewhere along the way, you decided that... Coral reef ecology wasn't for you and you wanted to do law school. Can you share that story? Yes, because it is a complete 180 to my plans that I had set for myself. There was somewhere, I think, within when in my sophomore junior year where, you know, the program is really great and it's really tough. And I had taken physics, like required calculus-based physics for this program, and mm-hmm. it's not my strong suit. And, you know, I realized that I'd also at the taken, you know, the older, the further along you get into a program, the more um, nuanced classes you get to take. You get out of, you know, biology 101, you get out of all of these different starter classes to give you the foundation for what you need to become this biologist you think you want to be. And then I started taking classes like coastal zone management and Mm. fisheries. And, you know, all of a sudden I started talking to professors who were more on the policy side. Like one of my professors who ended up becoming my advisor in undergrad um, was a member of the South Carolina Fishery Management Council, which Mm. makes management decisions for federal fisheries along the South Atlantic ocean space. And so I started taking more of those classes and then realized that I had much more of an affinity for the advocacy piece of ocean conservation than I did for the research um, and science piece of Mm -hmm. ocean conservation. And I think that you can't, you know, you need both. And once I really got into it, I realized that I felt like I could be more effective and that 
could really be better suited to like a public advocacy role. And then, you know, my advisor was like, maybe you should think of law school. And I stupidly listened to him. (laughs) And, you know, law school, we could spend an entire hour, I think, talking about law school. And I'm happy to do that. But law school is hard. And, you know, I took a break between undergrad and law school and I moved back home to Illinois to apply to places and make sure it was really what I wanted to do, which, you know, in hindsight, you never really know if law school is what you want to do until you're actually in law school. And then it's too late. And um, (laughs) I worked for the EPA in downtown Chicago. I did an internship working there for six months. And during that time, 9-11 happened. Mm. Um, and I was in downtown Chicago, you know, the day on September, on September 11th. And that was just such a, you know, like fresh out of college. And it was just such like, it's one of those, you know, turning points um, that you don't realize even at the time, like how big it's going to change your life or mm-hmm. everyone's life around you. And so I finished my internship after that. And, you know, I moved to Florida for a couple of months to help my grandma out who was getting older and then was like, yeah, I'm going to do this law school thing because I want to advocate for the ocean. And I feel like I am, I will do that. I can do that the best. I'm a lawyer. Okay, absolutely. So really quick, I want to go back to your internship with the EPA in downtown Chicago. What were some of your roles and responsibilities during that time? So I staffed um, a couple of folks who worked in the now, I think, long defunct office of like innovation. Mm. And so I did a lot of research projects for them and helped staff them in writing. I helped staff them in research. And it was fun because it gave me a sense of like what it might look like to work for the federal government because I definitely was interested in that coming out of undergrad I hadn't done any of that you know in the summers during undergrad the most I had done which was actually was really fun was spend a month um, on a teeny tiny island off the coast of Colombia doing Mm. coral reef transects for a month um, and taking coral reef ecology and tropical oceanography. And, you know, for anyone listening who feels like they want to do something like that, I very much urge you to do as much as you can dig it out in the field because it's Mm -hmm. really only, it's really only doing that that makes you understand what it takes to do that work as a scientist or, you know, interning for the EPA, which you know, luckily the program, which I can't even remember now what it's called. It may not even exist anymore. This was that long ago. You know, it was a paid internship. It wasn't a lot, but it was enough to, you know, let me have the experience. And I think that that's really important as you are trying to figure out how you, like how you want to show up in the conservation field is being able to experience that. And I think the more that organizations and governments are able to offer paid positions, paid, you know, internships for students, the, you know, more, the more people understand what it really takes, and whether they're really interested in pursuing that sort of career. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of unpaid stuff out there. And especially with field work, because people are 
able to do it. Some people are able Mm -hmm. to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it definitely closes the door for a lot of people that have bills to pay. And it is a really great way to learn because you think you want to go out and dive and it's going to be beautiful, crystal, clear waters and flat, calm all the time. And you're just going to be able to jump in and it's warm water and it's idyllic conditions. And actually getting out there, you can see that some days are absolutely like that, which is why people still do it and want to do it. And then and then the other side of it is that there's just a lot more to it. It's not just a fun day out on the boat. You have a lot of documentation to, to make sure you're keeping up on, a lot of equipment to bring out and clean. And, you know, your day doesn't start when you get on the boat. Your day starts way before that and it ends way after that. And then you know, and that's only a small part of it. And then you bring it home and write reports and actually make sense of whatever you're collecting. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really great that you had that experience and kind of crystallized in your mind, you are more of the advocacy side of things than the collecting the data and distilling it down side of things. Mm-hmm. So law school. <laughs> yeah. So you always knew that you wanted to be a, like to advocate for the oceans. Was there, is there like specific tracks within law school? Like, so medical field, right? Like you can declare like, I'm going to be a surgeon or I'm going to be a pediatrician. Mm -hmm. Like, are there specific tracks like that in law school for conservation versus like, I don't know, injury attorneys is what pops into my mind because I see the billboards everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, their marketing is much better (laughs) or has to be much more visible than say a fisheries law attorney. (laughs) Right. You know, they're... There is, I think that, so for specifically, so I went to Vermont Law School and I went there again for a combination of it was one of the best programs and it offered the best financial aid package for me, which again, I think law school is really expensive. And, you know, I was 23 walking into law school. I had taken a year off college and in my mind, I was I was luckily because undergrad was paid for part through scholarship and part through my parents' help. I wasn't walking into law school with debt. And so Mm -hmm. I think I had a more naive view of taking on the debt that law school incurs. Mm -hmm. And that's a real thing because they tell you it is good debt, (laughs) but it's Mm -hmm. still debt and you still have to pay it back. But, you know, so I went to Vermont Law School because at the time, and it still is, has one of the best environmental programs. And just like undergrad, you know, you start at the beginning because you have to, you have to understand the very core concepts of constitutional law and property law and how you bring a, you know, a case to court and what you need. And, you know, all of that for me in my first year was, it felt like a slap in the face because I had spent the last couple of years of my undergrad and then this internship at the EPA doing, you know, very specific ocean and coastal conservation work. And all of a sudden, here I was back at the beginning, you know, taking these classes that I had no interest in. Um, And I was miserable. It was really hard year. I'm really honest about that when people ask me about law school, because there's some people, there's like two types of people in law school. There are those that like love law school. They love being challenged in class and being asked questions. And then there's people like me who are like, please don't call on me. Please don't call on me. Please don't call on me. (laughs) And, you know, so the first year was really hard. And then I was lucky to sort of, I had chosen this program because they have a dual. So this is the long way of answering your question of yes, Vermont Law School. And there are other law schools like this that offer sort of these joint degrees where you can get your Juris Doctorate and become a lawyer and also a master's in something specific. So I left with what 
Vermont then called Masters in the Studies of Environmental Law. And now they call it the Masters in the Studies of Environmental Policy. Not a huge shift. And so the first, after that horrible first year of all of these classes where I was like, I don't want to be a traditional attorney. I want to protect the ocean. I don't care about this stuff. I took, I had a whole summer worth of courses like environmental law, ocean, fisheries and the ocean, um, mm-hmm. ocean and coastal law, environmental justice. So like all of these very specific courses that got me sort of back on track and, oh, right, this is why I went to law school, to be able to do these sorts of things, learn this information so that I could take it out into the real world eventually, um, have a career and start paying off all of these loans. It's a really good point that sometimes you just do have to start at the beginning. And, you know, it's true. It's true even when you, like you said, like starting marine sciences, like you had to take a bunch of general biology and physics and all these classes that you're like, well, this isn't specifically what I want to study. And then eventually you get there. Right. Um, so it's important to kind of keep that goal in mind. It's a really good point. Very much. So what was your first job like out of law school then? So... Leaving law school is an interesting time because for most folks who leave law school, they are looking for a traditional legal job and that requires passing the bar exam. So a lot of people feel fairly useless coming out of law school because what you have to do is then spend the next three months studying for the bar exam, which is only offered twice a year. And so when I walked out of law school, I didn't walk out with a job in hand. I did, I made this big decision. There's a very, very many people who leave Vermont Law School and go to Washington, D.C. to advocate for fill in the blank, because that's sort of the kind of law school that VLS is. It's very advocacy driven. And so there's a large number of folks who end up going to D.C. And I had been lucky in law school to be exposed to, this is, I think, goes back I'm sort of not answering the question, but I feel like I have to say this to like answer the question. In law school, there I think it's getting better now, but when I was in law school, it wasn't necessarily true that you did anything during the year other than just take classes. And, you know, like in college, I do best when I am learning in the field, learning hands-on and that law schools aren't really haven't really been set up to do that. Um, and so Vermont Law School had this really interesting program called a semester in practice. And you can be paired up with an attorney and you can go work in their office for a semester and get an entire semester worth of law school credit by working for this attorney. And I was able to do that and it was probably the best part of law school for me because I moved out to Portland, Oregon and worked for an attorney uh, who did fisheries law and she worked for a nonprofit and I had been connected to her through the professor who taught the fisheries and the ocean course that I had taken the summer before in between my first and second year. And so I totally was like, oh, fisheries law. This is so cool. I think I really want to do this and I want to work for a nonprofit. And, you know, so I, you know, went back to school and then had an internship in DC over the summer of my second, between my second and third year and worked for a nonprofit there. And I was like, DC is really cool. I don't want to live here. I definitely don't want to live here. Um, And so after law school, it was like, what are you going to do, Sarah? Are you going to move to Washington, D.C., where everyone else is going? Or do you want to move to Portland, Oregon, where you don't really have anything lined up? There's less jobs than in Washington, D.C., but you feel much more called there. 
as just sort of like the space was great. Like Oregon's great. I fell in love with Oregon by far. So I just moved to Oregon, started studying for the bar exam. And in that time started doing some contract work for the same organization that I had done my sort of semester in practice at. And then after all the bar exam stuff happened and I was finally licensed, my first job was with that organization. And it was part communications and part legal because they didn't at the time have a full-time attorney position. So I was like half doing a job that I was totally unqualified for and half doing a job that I was definitely qualified for. And it was a really interesting start into my career. I think it's a really good, that's a good point though, with kind of wearing two hats, Mm because it's something that I have found a lot in my career. I talk to other people, both in the marine science field and outside. Sometimes you just have to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's parts of the role that you're like, well, this is definitely my specialty. This is what, this is my jam. And then there's other parts that like, they just need the help and this is how you can have a job. So you wear that hat as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, it was really great. I learned so much about communicating to donors and communicating to interested citizens who cared about the ocean on, you know, complex policy issues that had to be turned into digestible information for folks who don't know what the National Environmental Policy Act is or what Mm -hmm. it does. And they don't necessarily want to know the specifics. They want to understand why it's important to fight for this law, why they should raise their voice for this, and how does having a strong National Environmental Policy Act on the books help the ocean. So it was really interesting. Um, And I I definitely enjoyed enjoyed wearing sort of multiple hats. Yeah. So while we're bringing up NEPA, could you explain a little bit more about it? The National Environmental Policy Act is a law that it's a really important law. It doesn't mandate that a decision has to be made a particular way. What it does is it says, hey, federal agencies, you are doing a lot of work on behalf of the American public, right? You are charged with spending money, spending government money. You are charged with making decisions around conservation and management, public works, transportation. In all likelihood, when you are doing these things, there are going to be environmental impacts, to the activities that you want to do. And so it's really, really important, federal government and agencies like the agency, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, who's in charge of most of the decisions around how our ocean and coasts are managed and protected. You guys are taking an action. It's definitely going to have some sort of environmental impact. We want you to analyze those impacts. We want you to think about this action. We want you to think about the scope of this action. We want you to talk to potential stakeholders who are going to be impacted by this action. And we want you to do an analysis that talks about all of these things. And we want you to write it down. We want you to come up with some potential alternatives to the action that you want to take to see if there are some other alternatives that could be better. And so the idea of NEPA is not to force the agency to make a particular decision, but to allow um, citizens and community members like you and I, if there's a federal activity that's going to make an impact in our community, that we're able to raise our voice around that issue. We're asking them to take specific, you know, to consider specific things around impacts 
Um, and then in theory, the idea is if the agency does all of this, if they listen to stakeholders, if they host meetings, if they do this analysis, they're going to make a more informed, better decision at the end of the day than they would have if they'd just done the project as they first created it. And that's really the general basis of NEPA. And it's why it's so important because without the National Environmental Policy Act, communities and community members like us have don't have as many ways to advocate to the federal government who's spending our money and making decisions on resources that they are stewards of on our behalf. And so it's really important that there are that NEPA is is there, it's on the books, and that we have all of these opportunities to make the federal government think about not just the impacts for maybe this one action, but for how, let's say, so right now there's a huge push to stand up offshore wind on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of wind here, and states along the East Coast are pushing themselves to draw more and more of their energy from renewable, sustainable sources. And that's great. But that's a lot of wind turbines in the water. And so mm-hmm. recently, the government said, we have to do an analysis about not just this one set of wind turbines, but a bunch of these wind turbines to see what sort of big picture impact these might make. And so doing that sort of stuff is important to make sure that agencies are making truly informed decisions and taking into account our voices as community members. It's a really great point. And that really segues nicely into a lot of the work that you're doing now with mm-hmm. the myriad of organizations that you're involved with. So you work you work with the American Littoral Society and mm-hmm. then also liaise with the Healthy Oceans Coalition. How does that partnership work and how did you become involved with these two organizations? Yeah. Um, so there is actually a pretty good connection. So when... I started working at the American Literal Society. It was to help run what ended up becoming the Healthy Oceans Coalition. Um, We weren't the Healthy Oceans Coalition yet. We were sort of a campaign between the society and a New England-based conservation group called the Conservation Law Foundation. So the society and CLF worked together to bring grassroots organizations from around the country together to help support the creation of a national ocean policy in the Obama administration. So President Mm -hmm. Obama had just been elected and the conservation community wanted to help amplify and stand up the idea that, you know, ocean, the way we use and manage the ocean has changed so much since the last time there was sort of a big federal policy overhaul that ocean conservation from the federal landscape really needed an overarching policy to direct how all of these federal agencies make decisions around ocean conservation and management. Because there are a shocking number of them that have like a piece of the pie. There's like 27 agencies and offices that have some sort of decision-making authority around how ocean coasts and Great Lakes are managed. There's this group and we started advocating for that. And then President Obama, through a whole set of steps, ended up doing that. And we were like, yay, this is awesome. Hey, um, we should now advocate for implementation. 
because it's all great to get something, but then you don't want that something to just sit and gather dust on a shelf in the White House. So we kind of formally created this collaboration between the American Literal Society and the Conservation Law Foundation. And so today, to this day, the Healthy Oceans Coalition is this partnership between these two organizations. And so a lot of my time is spent working to help run the HOC. Mm -hmm. And then some of my time, I run our ocean policy program. And so the work that I do went from just doing this creation and advocacy for implementing a national ocean policy to how does that play out? where the society is based, what's happening around ocean conservation and regional, like how are the states working together in the mid-Atlantic region, which is where the society has our offices, although I am based here in Boston, Massachusetts. So I think both regionally and I think nationally, and it's a pretty good, it's pretty good pairing. It keeps my work both you know, grassroots and as well as sort of national focused. Awesome. So the national ocean policy, it's, it's basically just an overarching, like this is something that should be implemented. And then your organizations are actually taking that policy and putting it into action. Am I understanding that correct? Uh, Yes. So we, well, when it existed, Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we really, and so what we tried to do really was, um, it wasn't just the HOC's voice as a whole, but it was, it's raising, so grassroots community-based organizations are where it's at, in my mind, that's my opinion. And because they're the ones doing the work, they're the ones who know the where it's, where there's flooding, they know where you know, there's not enough oxygen and there are fish kills happening. They know where the runoff is. They know where the pressure points are in their communities, in their ocean and coastal zones. And so what the HOC really tries to do is to just help amplify their powerful voices so that decision makers in DC hear them and hear them saying, we know what's happening here in our space and we want you to create policies that makes sense for us and help what's happening here in our in our place. And so it's about connecting smaller groups into federal policy, federal ocean and coastal policy initiatives like the National Ocean Policy. So what happened to the National Ocean Policy? So not unlike over a hundred other environmental Um, regulations and policies. In 2018, um, the Trump administration rescinded the policy, which meant it no longer existed. So all of the things that the policy had done over eight years was basically deemed null and void. Mm -hmm. So for instance, one of the important things that the policy put in place was the requirement that federal agencies sit at a common table. Well, first of all, what I should say that the table needed to be agreed upon. So the idea was that states, coastal states and federal agencies and tribal governments would sit at a common table and talk about the issues that were important to their region. So it was done Mm -hmm. sort of by region. So for me, 
thinking specifically, say, the Mid-Atlantic region, which is from New York through Virginia. And once they decided to all sit at this table, which the Mid-Atlantic did decide to do, federal agencies were required to participate. And Mm. they developed a plan, and it was approved by the White House, and federal agencies were then required to implement that plan. And the plan dealt with regional priorities that were of great importance. So offshore wind, offshore oil and gas, protecting special places, things that really make a difference. And then when the Trump administration took back the national ocean policy and put in place their own policy, that requirement of federal agencies disappeared overnight Mm -hmm. and upended years worth of work that these you know, planning bodies, this table that different regions had created for themselves had worked on. And so that was incredibly frustrating to watch. Mm. Now, has that, so the federal government just doesn't bother meeting with anybody anymore because they're not required? Or have some of these different sectors of the government continued to honor what the national ocean policy was trying to implement? Mm -hmm. So several of these Com- these tables, these uh, they're called planning bodies, they did continue to move forward. And so that was really great to see. The frustrating part was watching them spin their wheels and spend like nine months to a year trying to rev back up because they had to, cr- they had to essentially create an entire new table, right? They had to decide how would they meet and what would they meet about and did the work that they do before even make sense anymore and you know at that point you had many people who had moved and so the relationships were different you had mm-hmm. you know different state governments had come into place obviously it was a very different federal administration between the priorities of the Obama administration on ocean and coastal conservation versus the Trump administration are very very different in in their focal points the Obama administration was very much trying to balance sustainable use of the ocean and conserving the ocean, right? So how do we balance so that we can make sure we're doing both? And the Trump administration had a much more firmer weight placed on using the ocean and less of a priority on protecting and conserving the ocean. It's like, what can we get out of the ocean and our coasts? So Mm -hmm. that relationship created a very different dynamic, I think, in the regions. And they all moved forward differently. Some just didn't move forward. Some was like, some were like, look, we don't have any money. There isn't any money coming anymore for us to do this. So we're kind of out of luck, you know? Like there there isn't any way for us to move forward. So like the Pacific Islands, which is a huge space of huge amount of ocean space, just said, look, you disbanded this kind of table and we don't have the money to set up a new kind of table. So we're done until someone can help us. And so, so it that, wasn't just a policy. Also, it also provided some sort of shelving for, for funding that enabled these tables to happen. Yeah. Yep. Not the policy specifically, but some pieces of appropriations, there was money put forward. Some agencies provided it, you know, because then I think the important part of the national ocean policy was it didn't create new new things for the government to do. Like it didn't say you need more work, <laughs> you need you need more responsibilities. The idea was 
you have enough responsibilities. What we, the White House, the Obama administration want you to do is work together better because all of you already have all these things you're doing, but you need to coordinate better. You need to understand if this agency is trying to um, decide how many fish are being taken out of the ocean and where they're being taken out of the ocean. You have another agency that wants to put take sand out of the ocean or put wind turbines in the ocean, that those things are going to impact where fish are. They're going to impact every activity has an impact on on something else. And so these agencies already had money to do those things. And so the Obama administration was just saying, you already have your responsibilities. We just want you to work together. And mm-hmm. then there were like, there was like some supplemental money that came in to help support that through appropriations, some federal dollars and some private money and some, some states even, you know, ponying up some money to, to help make it happen. Gotcha. What specifically is your role within all of this framework then? Because you said you, you mentioned you worked with federal down to the regional level and you like ha- helps keep your fingers in the grassroots. Like what does what does your job look like? Yeah, so there's a lot there's a lot of different things. So I in the last couple of years have definitely stepped back a little bit to allow I have two amazing people who work in my program and they are incredible. And so I definitely am in the space in my career where I have to manage more as opposed to do the work and allow them to step up and shine and, you know, spread their wings and take on more responsibilities. So that's actually been a really interesting transition in my career recently over the last couple of years. But, you know, the work that I do generally, other than managing these two amazing people, is, you know, from the federal side, the like I said, the Healthy Oceans Coalition is really about trying to amplify the powerful voices in the region. So we do a lot of things to to help folks who a lot of these groups don't have someone tracking what's happening in DC, but they know it's important to the work that they do. And so we try and connect them into what's happening, where changes are happening, where there's the ability to raise their voice. And then one of our biggest things, which is one of my favorite things, is we host advocacy trainings twice a year. And in this virtual world, we're trying to figure out what that looks like to keep that moving. But you know, before the pandemic, we would bring together a group of 15 to 20 folks in a region, in a state who work in ocean and coastal conservation or social justice that's tied to ocean conservation or climate change and spend two days talking about what's happening at the federal level. How can you create and nurture relationships with your decision makers? How do you communicate to the media? How do you communicate through social media? And it's One of my favorite things to do is to host these trainings and talk about why ocean conservation at the federal level is still really important, even to grassroots groups, and how their work is so important to be heard, you know, in the halls of Congress. Um, And so that's one of my favorite things to do is to host these trainings. We also just provide toolkits and webinars for anyone 
HOC members are, we're a coalition of the willing. So you Mm -hmm. don't have to pay any money. You don't have to sign a form that says, I'm going to do A, B, and C to be a member. It allows people to sort of ebb and flow, right? As it makes sense for them to participate, they participate. And when it doesn't make sense, then they just, you know, I think they get our emails and maybe they'll sign a petition. But there's so many ways to raise your voice and to communicate priorities that are important. And so Though that's a huge piece of my work. And then the other part is really spending time thinking about, you know, how does the mid-Atlantic United States work together? And so it's always from an advocacy place. Um, so it's always the American Literal Society asking the state of New Jersey to do something, or we're asking this regional body that's made up of state governments and federal governments and tribal governments to do something, to engage stakeholders like us more often, to think about, you know, protecting special places and what are they doing about climate change. So a lot of it is just, you know, straight on advocacy and asking and having meetings and phone calls. And sometimes that's tiring, you know, sitting in front of your computer all day. You're like, am I doing something for the ocean? And, you know, some days I leave and I'm like, I don't know. I feel like I was just on the phone all day. But then there are other days where, you know, I we host a training even virtually and I see how people are still really excited to connect on issues. And even more now when things are, you know, feeling much more intersectional around social justice and climate justice issues. And, you know, you do see that conservation at any level through any lens is really important right now. Absolutely. That's really good points. And it is important work that you're doing. We need we need people communicating at the, the law level to get things done. And I also love that Healthy Oceans Coalition and the Littoral Society also have a lot of hands-on opportunities for people that do live in the mid-Atlantic region. So there's coastal cleanups and dune plantings and restoration work. Could you speak to some of the more hands-on things that people can get involved with? Yeah. Um, So right now, that's obviously really hard to do. Um, (laughs) And I, I see my, the amazing people who work in our education department and our restoration department, they are having a really, you know, hard time because the work that they do is so community based. It's getting into classes and teaching about you know, grasses, sea grasses, and it's, you know, you know, walking kids through, you know, seining right off of Sandy Hook Bay and restoration is, you know, building these oyster beds and reefs and replanting dunes. And so there's so much hands-on that folks really can get involved in. We're just like every other organization out there trying to figure out how it's done safely especially right now. So there are a lot of ways in a non-pandemic where there we do horseshoe crab tagging trips, mm-hmm. which are amazing. And I encourage everyone to do that once because these creatures are 
amazing. If you've never seen one, they're incredible and they're really important in the ecosystem. And so, you know, watching my colleagues in restoration rebuild beaches so that they can come onto the beach and, you know, spawn and lay their eggs that then get eaten by migratory birds who need that sustenance to make their entire migratory trip is pretty incredible to watch how very clearly all of these creatures are connected and that if one thing is off balance, it kind of upsets the entire ecosystem. So there's a lot of ways, you know, right now we're having more virtual events. We're really focused on, um, our education directors really focused on zero waste workshops. And so there's a lot of ways, even right now, when we know we can't be together in large groups, that we can still make a difference for coastal conservation, even online or even, you know, in writing postcards to decision makers. There's a lot of hands-on ways that you can still make a difference. I do know too that there are some cleanups that are tentatively scheduled. And I guess I would point um, you to literalsociety.org, which is our website. Um, and it has events. So if you happen to be in the Mid-Atlantic area and you're in New Jersey, um, there's also you know, other great organizations that have coastal cleanups around the country if you're in the United States and even internationally. Um, and those are always really great ways to get to know your community members and engage locally on what's, what's important to your community, whether you are cleaning up a stream in Colorado or you are cleaning up a beach in New Jersey. Love it. So I have two points I kind of want to circle back to. And then I want to chat about women working for oceans. So you you mentioned way earlier about offshore wind and kind of how it can impact the ocean. And generally, when people hear mm-hmm. about renewable energy, you're just it's all good, right? Like, what's mm-hmm. what's wrong about renewable wind, it's offshore, whatever. And what people don't necessarily realize is that these wind turbines are one massive. And so it's a lot of construction that is going on in coastal habitats, even further offshore than coastal zones, um, habitats. And with, with that, they're loud. They're not, they're, they're like not quiet things and you would think they would be, but they're really not. And in the water, sound travels much further. So it can add a lot of disruption to the marine environment. Are there other issues that are kind of being brought to the table? Um, Or what are some of the concerns that stakeholders Mm -hmm. have with these offshore wind turbines? Yeah, so there are, there are a lot of potential impacts with any placement of any industrial use of the ocean, whether it be something that is going to help us transition off of fossil fuels or it's placing more fossil fuels. (laughs) And I think that, you know, very clearly we think that, you know, offshore wind is very important and it's going to be an important component for us to mitigate the real impacts of climate change that the ocean is already disproportionately feeling, right? Like, Mm -hmm the 90% of the excess heat that has been produced by man-made greenhouse gases have has been absorbed by the ocean. And so those are real things and you know offshore wind is one of the solutions. That being said, you know the literal society is also just asking decision makers to not have blinders on and to make sure that we're responsibly citing offshore wind. 
Um, and so obviously you're going to have, you know, commercial and recreational fishing impacts depending on where and how you place the turbines. There are a lot of projects slated from, you know, Maine through Virginia um, that are going to add a ton of, you know, renewable energy into the grid, but also if they're not placed responsibly could create some really big problems for migratory species, for fish habitat. One example, maybe you could post this with the podcast, the Conservation Law Foundation, and I want to say the Natural Resources Defense Council. So two nonprofits that, you know, have have done a lot of advocacy around the North Atlantic right whale, which is very critically endangered species around making sure that construction is not done during the time that they are migrating through the area so that that migratory aspect is not it doesn't impact them, right? So you were talking about how sound travels and how mm-hmm. that could really, you know, place a larger burden on this already very burdened species um, mm-hmm. that we don't want to see go extinct in our lifetimes. And so there are things like that. And so there, so there's right. So there's coastal impacts of bringing, you know, these cables back to onshore facilities. There's commercial fishing impacts potential impacts. There are recreational impacts. There's navigational impacts. And so there's a lot. And what this really says to us is that coordinated regional management is so crucial to making sure that this is done appropriately. So you can't just have one federal agency out there going, we're just going to put these things right here because we think this is the great greatest place without A, talking to other federal agencies, B, talking to state governments, you know, who want the wind, they want the energy from the wind, but they also have coastal and ocean resources that are really important to them to protect as well. And then stakeholders, right? So coastal communities that might be impacted, um, fishing communities, conservation community who's trying to speak for you know, the whales and the fish habitats and stuff like that. So those are some of the potential impacts. And I think if it's if they're cited responsibly and federal agencies and states listen to people that, you know, there's still going to be some impacts, but they're going to be done in a way where communities and people and stakeholders feel heard and that they've made the best decision to to place these things. So there's a lot going on though. There's a lot. There's a lot of components to think of. Thank you yeah. for explaining that. I also wanted to cover, well, before I get to the second topic, I wanted to jump back to uh, American Littoral Society. For those that don't know what littoral means, yeah. it's coastal zones. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Um, there's this bumper sticker that I love that my boss, our executive director, has. It says, um, the literal society is not a book club because it's <laughs> like the number one question we get is, are you like a book club for like, like, what are you? Which, I mean, hey, when I first started at the literal society, I had to think about it because <laughs> from going from college to law school, you lose a lot of information. And so I was like, literal literal society what oh right 
Um, yeah, so it's on the back of my business card what the the littoral zone, right, or the, the shoreline yeah. space. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, the, the society was created by a science, scientists and divers in New Jersey in 1961. And so it was this, you know, really created to study and conserve ocean and coastal habitats and wildlife. And so it was very much um, science focused. And I think that's how the name, you know, ended up being this very science based name that most people are like, um, okay. <laughs> it is very science based, but you do very. have the, the tagline of caring for the coast. So it kind, right. of, it kind of alludes a little bit to the name. And it's all on our t-shirts. Every t-shirt on the back has the definition of littoral. So the other point I wanted to bring up, you mentioned um, some zero waste initiatives that your education department is really trying to focus in on while we're Mm -hmm. kind of all in a virtual space connecting. And uh, one of the things that the littoral society, so is the, um, this break free from plastic pollution act. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, um, I can. And I will just say that, um, you know, the society is very much supportive of the bill. Um, We haven't been one of the organizations that have worked really hard to make this bill happen. So I Mm want to give a special shout out to the Plastic Pollution Coalition, the Surfrider Foundation, um, there have lot, been a lot of advocates that have worked really, really hard, um, along with legislators who introduced this bill, both in the Senate and the House. Um, and so I just want to make sure that I give them a shout out. So this bill is sort of the first overarching legislation to try and tackle the plastic pollution crisis. And it does a lot of things. You know, it bans certain single use plastic products that aren't recyclable. It helps, it would help spur a lot of investment into domestic recycling and composting infrastructure. Um, It would prohibit plastic waste from being shipped out to other countries. So like really would make the U.S. sort of reckon with how much plastic we use because we wouldn't be able to send it to another country and then just, you know, forget that it exists. It would place a pause on any new plastic facilities coming online. And, you know, this is just a couple of important things, I think, from this legislation. So Senator Tom Udall from New Mm -hmm. Mexico And Representative Ellen Lowenthal from California were the original two sponsors of these bills in the Senate and the House. And, you know, plastic pollution, plastic production is problematic from start to finish. Mm -hmm. And so this bill really tries to help get at some of the core issues around plastic production, like A, we just don't, we shouldn't be doing this. It's adding to our climate crisis, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the production of plastic is, you know, done through these petrochemical plants by refining oil. And so we're using fossil fuels to make these plastic products that then we throw away and then we just do it over and over again. You know, what's coming out of these petrochemical plants? Pollutants. Where are these petrochemical plants placed in, you know, 
disproportionately poorer communities that are feeling the real health impacts from plastic production. And then we use this plastic and we throw it away and we need to make more. And then where does all this plastic go if it doesn't get recycled? It ends up in the ocean, right? Or it ends up in landfills. And I think this legislation is the first real opportunity to change that narrative and reduce the impact that plastic production is having both to human health, disproportionately, you know, poor and frontline communities in a lot of places are, you know, people of color and in the ocean environment and to adding to just the climate burden of burning fossil fuels, you know, refining them to make plastic. So I think it's a really important bill. There's a lot of ways to help support the bill. You know, it's not going to get passed out of the Senate right now because the Senate isn't interested in that sort of stuff, but it's sitting there and it's really important to build support, you know, right now for legislation Mm -hmm. like this. So I would urge anyone who's interested in in learning more, you know, the Healthy Oceans Coalition just hosted a webinar with people so much more informed than me on plastic pollution. Like everything I just said, I learned from listening to these people on the webinar. (laughs) We co-hosted it with this other coalition. They're called the Inland Ocean Coalition, and they work in inland communities to connect people to the ocean. And we had someone from Senator Udall's office on, Um, We had someone from the Plastic Pollution Coalition on, and we had an advocate from the Texas Environmental Justice Advocacy Services organization on talking about the environmental racism and environmental justice issues around plastic production. So if you're really interested, it was so fun to have them on. They're so, so smart and so committed to this. So if you just, I think if you just go to the Healthy Oceans Coalition website, you'll find a link to that webinar and you can learn more about what's happening with the legislation and why it's why it's such an important piece of legislation. Perfect. I'll put a link to that in the show notes for our awesome. audience. I just want a, a quick, quick click. Yeah. Awesome. So we're butting up at the end of the time, but I do want to chat a little bit about women working for oceans. Could you explain what the organization is and kind of what they do and your involvement? I can, you know, I am a member, um, mm-hmm. but I am not a leader in the Women Working for Oceans organization. Um, so what does being a member look like? You know, being a member looks like, I think they're a great group. So they are, if I'm remembering correctly, so they're attached to the New England Aquarium. And actually one of their members came to one of our Healthy Oceans Coalition advocacy trainings about a year ago. And so, you know, they provide kind of similar to the Healthy Oceans Coalition, ways for folks to engage in ocean advocacy in in the place where they are. So it's very much looking at it through a New England lens, although also like the HOC, there's a lot of, you know, legislative issues that they advocate for. And so I get action alerts. I get, you know, on like whale conservation, on plastic pollution. I always get a lot of information from them about, you know, how to protect New England's one and only national marine monument, the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts. They do a ton of advocacy around that. It's been really important. And just, they're so supportive of 
of women and women working in conservation, women who want to help protect the ocean. Um, I think it's a really interesting, you know, unique group that's trying to engage a specific advocate in, you know, help further their work in ocean protection. So, you know, like one time I got to go out on a boat in the Boston Harbor and learn about the North Atlantic right whale and their Mm -hmm. migration and why it's so important to protect them. So they find a lot of really cool, fun ways to connect people in to ocean conservation issues to get them to be, you know, stronger, more vocal advocates for local ocean issues. That's great. What a great organization. Yeah. Uh, you just brought up another thing that I wanted to chat with you about. There's so much I want to talk with you about. <laughs> I'll come back. Yeah. The Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Marine oh, National. Yeah. That is such a mouthful to say. It is. Um, could you touch on that? We'll, we'll just yeah. try to make, and we may have to have you back on. <laughs> that would be fine. That would be totally fine. So the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Marine National Monument is the only Atlantic marine monument and big protected area. So it's really, really important. And it protects some incredible habitats, some incredible canyons and seamounts, as the name infers. It was created at the end of the Obama administration. It was done through a presidential action. Many presidents, both Republican and Democrat, have used this their ability to create a national monument. Um, And so Obama created it at the end of his term. And, you know, unfortunately, just a couple of months ago, the current administration rolled back the protections in this place for fishing, which is incredibly silly because it's like 150 miles off the coast. And so the type of fishing that the administration was trying to support um, the lobster industry they don't go out there. <laughs> so it, you know, it's, it's not everything in the ocean. I think fishing is really important. So I don't want to discount that. But you know, fishing isn't the only thing that's important about the ocean, right? There are habitats that need to be protected. There are species that need to be protected, both because they deserve it, because the ocean is important, but also because these species and these habitats provide humans important things. And to roll back the fishing protections, which by the way, organizations are already suing over, they're saying that's not, you can't do that within the space, is just backwards because it's not actually trying to get at the real problem, which is the pandemic has, you know, taken out markets for for fish. It's a lot harder to sell fish and that is awful. But rolling back fishing protections in the one and only Atlantic big protected space is not going to solve that problem. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, placing a Band-Aid not on the wound, like, like you know, on the other arm where you have a, <laughs> where you have a gaping wound. And so it's really important. There is advocacy right now around what a ridiculous rollback that was. And I urge anyone who hasn't heard about the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts to check out Women Working for the Oceans has stuff on their website. The Conservation Law Foundation has. I mean, they've been advocating for this for years and they were instrumental and getting, you know, this um, space protected in the first place, you can learn more about it and find very specific ways to help protect protect that place because it really, really deserves it. Absolutely. 
I'll put a link to that on the show notes. Um, it is it is a vital piece of the ocean conservation landscape. So everyone should kind of look at that and think about how if you even if you don't live in on the east coast of the U.S., kind of how that and can influence your local landscape as well. Absolutely. Um, so I have a like a question, total personal question and sure. opinion opinion based. So do you think that because you know you mentioned earlier like law school was a lot. Do you think you need to be a lawyer to be a good advocate or conservationist? Like, do you think law school was something that absolutely helped you get to where you are in your career? Or was there, is there another way to do that? So I think you absolutely do not have to go to law school to be a great advocate and champion for the ocean. There are so many ways to show up for the ocean. If you are thinking about a career in the ocean, there's a lot of ways, there's so many ways to do that. There's so many ways to show up, whether it be by going to law school, if you really want to, graduate programs in policy exist that are less expensive and not as time intensive, right? They take maybe two years as opposed to three years. And, you know, some of the most amazing advocates that I know for the ocean and our coasts didn't even go to college. And so I think that anyone can find their way to it. You know, it doesn't have to be like my path where I zeroed in on it at a very early age. You know, one of my favorite people ended up a coastal advocate because, you know, they were trying to turn an old railroad space into you know, they were trying to develop it. And so she fought to have it turned into a rail trail. Mm-hmm. And then that's how her career progressed out from there. And she didn't even go to school to become an advocate. And she's one of the best advocates for ocean and coastal conservation I know. So there's so many ways to find your own space in in ocean and coastal conservation, whether you're coming at it from a human health lens, from a social justice lens, from a science lens, definitely, definitely don't have to go to law school. Um, There's a lot of different ways to end up as an advocate. And some of them cost more and some of them are more time intensive, absolutely, for sure. But I urge people to, you know, think creatively and ask yourself where you really see yourself, where your passion lies for the ocean. There's just so many ways to help protect it. It's a great Great points. Thank you for sharing. So I like to leave the audience at the end of each episode with a ask Mm -hmm. to go forth and bring into the world for the oceans. And I feel like we've kind of like talked about it. So what is your conservation? Oh, vote. (laughs) (laughs) Vote. Because, you know, you can clean up the beach. And I think that's so incredibly important. But if you don't have legislators willing to stem the tide on plastic pollution, you're just going to keep cleaning up the beach over and over again. So Mm -hmm. vote for people who believe what you believe, who also want to make, you know, the climate more stable and, you know, have less plastic or, you know, whatever your community is facing. And so I think that then would be my other ask would be to connect with your community's issues. You know, how is climate change impacting the community around you? Where is the flooding? Where are the petrochemical plants if you live nearby some of them? Because then that even provides opportunities for you to volunteer, to get to know your neighbors, to understand what's happening locally. So you can advocate 
nationally for changes that will help your community, your piece of the coast, your piece of the ocean, or even, you know, your, even if you don't live near the ocean, like we talked about, everyone's impacted by the health of the ocean. So I think, think, you know, one of our panelists in the webinar said, you know, think nationally, but act locally. So I would second, I would second her thought about that. Those are my immediate suggestions. (laughs) Great asks. And if the audience wants to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and or your work, what's the, where's the best place to do that? Head to healthyoceanscoalition.org. You will find out, you'll find all the ways to connect with, with me, with the team, with the work we're doing, the asks we have, and our priority issues, both with the HOC as well as the society and CLF. So there's all sorts of great information there. Awesome. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really, really enjoyed our chat. It was my pleasure. This was so fun. There are some things we talked about I haven't even thought about in years about how I got started. So this was such a joy for me to do. Thank you for (laughs) inviting me. Absolutely. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.